Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today is Dr. Patrick Allett. Dr. Allett is the Cahoon Family Professor of American History at Emory University. He's the author of seven books, including most recently, A Climate of Crisis, America in the Age of Environmentalism. He's also the pre- presenter of eight lecture series with The Great Courses, including most recently one on the Industrial Revolution. Dr. Allett, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. So a lot of your uh, work in the uh, the uh, lecture series that we are kind of basing this conversation off of was your great works course on the Industrial Revolution. Why should people study the history of the Industrial Revolution, and what is its significance in terms of human progress? I think it's one of the two most important events in the whole of world history. Probably the first most important event is the Neolithic Revolution, the discovery that plants and animals can be domesticated and turned to human service. And the second most is the Industrial Revolution, because it it raised for the first time the possibility um, of making everybody far wealthier than previously. Throughout most of world history, nearly everyone has been desperately poor. But societies that have gone through the Industrial Revolution have shown that it's possible to elevate living standards unevenly, but still elevate them for everybody. So one question I have is what's around the terminology uh, referring to the, the Neolithic Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. Obviously, the adoption and development of agriculture took place in a countless number of locations across the world independently and gradually over time. And there are still some holdouts that, that live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Do you think that industrialization um, has been similar or was it more concentrated and then spread from one uh, one perhaps font of of revolution? Yes, it's much more concentrated. Obviously, it took place in a society which was already literate, so that um, events which began in Britain, where it started, could very quickly be heard about all over the um, literate world. So industrialization has happened in a flash by comparison with the very, very gradual, as you say, um, hit and miss techniques of the Neolithic Revolution about which we can't really reconstruct a history. We just know that it must have happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very big difference there. And I think Britain was the beginning of it for, well, it's one of the, it's one of the great historical questions that historians still dispute, but there are a few things which nearly everyone agrees about. First, that there was surplus capital built up through the British empire. Uh, and, and in other words, there were enough rich people in England in the 1700s that they were looking things to invest this money in, in addition to more colonial ventures. There was a surplus population that could become the workforce. Um, farming was productive enough that not everybody had to be a farmer. In other words, there was enough surplus food that the industrial workers could be fed. And Britain was well supplied with the necessary raw materials, particularly coal and iron ore. So these things came together along with a generation of uh, entrepreneurial ingenuity and inventiveness, which, and collectively would give the name of those those things the Industrial Revolution. How would you, or what would you identify as attributes of Britain that distinguish it from Holland and Belgium, two two 
uh, now we would call them countries, but a region that was very advanced commercially alongside Britain in the 17th century, but then didn't experience that boom of industrialization at quite the same time or place? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I can give you an adequate answer in the case of Holland, except that um, it doesn't appear to have had a concentration of inventors. In other words, what it, it does come back to particular people inventing methods to do things in a new way. People like um, Richard Arkwright in textile manufacturing, he, he and the other inventors of textile machinery who realized they could make fabric far, far quicker, or, or yarn first, and then later the weavers could do the fabric more quickly. And then people like uh, James Watt and George Stevenson with steam technology. As far as I know, they didn't have Dutch counterparts, but exactly why they didn't, I can't say. Um, related to the, the textile point, one of the uh, really important inventions you discuss in um, the course is the, the mule, the spinning mule. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, starting in the 1760s, there were various um, uh, weaving machines, winning, weaving and spinning machines were invented. Um, and they were able to do the same work as one woman with a spinning wheel, first five times as fast, then 10 times as fast, then 100 times as fast. And the mule was an invention by a man called Samuel Crompton, which really brought together the insights of these various different machines and then linked them to a steam engine, which could take over from a person simply turning a wheel so that you could get a, an increased efficiency of several hundred percent. And the, so the mule becomes really one of the foundational machines from just before 1800 onwards. Uh, and it could be linked either to a water wheel or, or to a steam engine. Mm -hmm. Something that some historians emphasize more than others is this proliferation of water-powered uh, machinery and, and small-scale factories through the, the um, early modern period. Not quite, it wasn't quite sparking the Industrial Revolution, that really was the steam engine, but how widespread was water-powered manufacturing and how significant was it economically? very significant from the 1760s right into the middle 1800s. Very often factories which set up with water wheels continued to use them because they were good. But in the end, steam proved even better because the limitation of water wheels is that if you have a long dry spell, the volume of water in the river falls, which tends to mean that you've got less power to turn the wheel. Whereas with a steam engine, you've got far more control over the, um, the energy input to it. But water power was significant and it remains a, a terrific source of energy in many places in the world right up to the present. And of course, it had a kind of industrial prehistory. Back in the, already in the 12 and 1300s, water was being used to turn mills in which um, grains were converted into flour. So there was a familiarity with it and, and water wheel technology was really perfected, I suppose, in the 1810s and 20s after which steam clearly could prove to be more versatile. Apart from anything else, of course, water wheels are only really good in hilly, hilly districts. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you look at the English industrialization, it starts in the valley of uh, the River Derwent in Derbyshire, but then quite early on, it migrates to Manchester, which is flat country where water wheels aren't going to be much good. But Manchester is much better in terms of its proximity to the coast 
and access to things like imports of cotton coming in from America. The problem with the Derwent Valley is that it's inland and it was hard to get to. And Manchester is, of course, the, the quintessential industrial city. Right. Um, tell us a bit about that history. Did it, did it exist as a, as, a, as a small town and then developed, or was it completely developed part blanche? How did that come about? It was a small village, uh, but relatively insignificant. It started to grow in the 1770s when one of the very first industrial canals reached it. An aristocrat called the Duke of Bridgewater built a canal from his coal mines to Manchester. And in the face of quite a lot of skepticism from people who said this canal was far too expensive and too difficult to build, it turned out to be a terrific money spinner. So the price of coal fell very sharply in Manchester. And then its proximity to the coast made it suitable for manufacturers to start concentrating there, making both wool and cotton fabrics, then, then it grew very rapidly. One of the great mm -hmm. classic descriptions we've got of it from 1844 is by Frederick Engels, Karl Marx's friend. Engels went there from Germany when he was about 20 and saw it, and he's simultaneously fascinated and horrified by it, because on the one hand, it's unbelievably productive, this massive area of factories. On the other hand, it's full of the most horrifying housing and misery and wretchedness and chronic economic insecurity. I don't know if this is something that you've studied, but would you be able to compare and contrast the boom of Manchester and the development of Shenzhen in China in the, in the last 30 years, a, a, a city that was a cluster of villages in 1980 and, and is now a, a megalopolis of 20 million people? Uh, you're right to, to anticipate that I don't know much about Shenzhen, but uh, pre presumably it's the same principle. Once manufacturers find the ideal place, they can locate there and cause extremely rapid economic growth in the area. But of course, what tends to grow with the uh, economic output is all the problems of having too many people located too quickly in the same place with an inadequate infrastructure and very often inadequate regulation of how the things get done. So presumably Shenzhen and other Chinese cities will now have to go through the same process of improved sanitation, improved water supply, improved smoke regulation, things like that, to become more livable. The, the narrative on Shenzhen, or at least the one that, that I tell, is that it, is, it was a, uh, as one of the special economic zones established by Deng Xiaoping, it had an extraordinary degree of, of economic freedom unavailable elsewhere in China. Thus, it became um, attractive to manufacturers who were coming in from, from Hong Kong and elsewhere and was able to have a strong pull factor for people from the countryside who were held back by the um, still quite restric restrictive um, economic strictures in China at that time. What were the pull and push factors that cities like Manchester had for people in England? in the, the 19th century? Well, you've, you've put your finger on a very important distinction. The one thing that Britain already had by the 1700s, the late 1700s, was a government which was not very repressive and which, which welcomed economic initiatives on the part of citizens. It was a very, very, I mean, by our standards, an incredibly laissez-faire place. Um, obviously, in a way, it's sort of Adam Smith's dream, and he wrote The Wealth of Nations at the time, where, um, government didn't prey on manufacturers. In other words, it didn't try to um, extort from them an excessive amount of the money they'd made. 
So that was, from a manufacturer's point of view, a very, very, uh, really an ideal situation in which to develop manufacturing. Manchester had this problem, though. It didn't have any representation in Parliament. That um, Parliament had grown up organically from the, really from the 1100s onwards. And the idea of parliamentary reform so that the new constituency should be placed where there were new concentrations of population. That didn't come about until the Great Reform Act of 1832, when finally the old regime admitted that the, the, the terrible fit between the actual population and the representation in Parliament was a scandal. I mean, there was a place called Old Sarum, whose population had fallen to zero, but it had still got two members of Parliament. And then there was Manchester with hundreds of thousands of people and no representation. So gradually the political system caught up with the new economic realities. But, it, but as I mentioned before, the political condition, or the, the, the conditions of political economy were very favorable. I think that's really the most important thing. And throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, industrialization was always easiest in places where government wasn't going to stand in the way and wasn't going to um, expropriate the, the wealth which was being generated privately. Could you talk a little bit about the cultural attitudes at that time? I know people like Deirdre McCloskey have written about how um, people's ability to be seen as like having a go at things and not being the average person being sort of free to pursue, you know, projects and new, new uh, strategies or inventions and new ways of doing things is really important to economic development. Um, was that, that that must have been the case at the time of the birth of the Industrial Revolu Revolution, I would imagine, right? Yes, although it's a complicated picture because it's also true that working in Britain never had a, was never a high status activity. What British people wanted to do above all was not work. And uh, they, they, the long history of the British aristocracy was of people who didn't work, or at least the only work they do was fighting because military careers were high status and politics and being in the church. So being a clergyman, being a soldier, or being an admiral or a politician was great. But an ordinary aristocrat would regard, especially industrial work, as getting his hands dirty, and most of them wouldn't do it. On the other hand, there was a growing population of people who'd rejected the, the Orthodox um, British church, the Church of England. These were the people whom Max Weber wrote in The Protestant Spirit and the Ethic of Capitalism, or is it The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism? Um, people who had grown up in Congregationalist or Presbyterian or Quaker households, a little bit later Methodist households, who rejected the conventional value structure of British life and who were looking for confirmation of their value in God's eyes. And if you look at who the inventors and who the manufacturers and the industrialists were, time after time after time, there were these, what in England are called non-conformists, meaning that they didn't conform to the Church of England. So that's part of the story. And again, if you look at their families, what tended to happen after the second or third generation, as the family made more and more money, very often the sons and grandsons of the original industrialists did become members of the Church of England, and they married into the old aristocracy, and then they dropped out of industry because they could then buy landed estates which had higher status. So if you look, if you jump forward to about the 1890s, 
you find very wealthy people buying their way or marrying their way into the aristocracy rather than carrying on the industrial dynasty. So, I mean, that's where Britain and America differed, I think, that if you look at families like the Rockefellers or the Fords in America, they kept going in business, but their British counterparts, many of them dropped out. There is one uh, dynasty of industry that you discuss in, in your course that captured my attention, and, and that's the Brunels, uh, particularly Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who I believe is the son, is that correct? Yes, that's right. T talk to us about the Brunels. Well, Marc Brunel was a Frenchman who had to flee the French Revolution to avoid being killed at the time of the revolution in 1793. He came for a while to America. He was a very, very talented engineer. Uh, and then when he went back to Europe, he went to England and set up one of the very first uh, mass production factories in Britain. And he was mass producing um, what, what are called blocks. They're components of sailing ships which were needed in very large numbers by the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And this block factory was a terrific success, at least up to 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars ended with the Battle of Waterloo. But then he, I mean, another of his great projects was to build the first tunnel under the River Thames, which divides London. And for that, he brought his teenage son on board, uh, Isambard, who was also a brilliantly gifted engineer with a, a really Promethean sense of self-confidence. And, and the son, Isambard, then became one of the original um, superstars of railway construction, which began in the 1830s. He built a lovely suspension bridge over the River, Seven in, over, uh, the River Avon in Bristol. He built the Great Western Railway. He built three enormous steamships, which broke the record for rapid Atlantic crossings. Um, and worked himself to death. I mean, he died at the age of about 45 after a life in which he'd consistently done 18 and 19 hour work days. So he's really an emblematic figure for the a boundlessly self-confident British industrialist of the early Victorian period. And if I recall correctly, one of his ambitions that was perhaps not realized was the integrated West, Great Western journey from London to New York, in which you would take the train and then get on a Great Western ship. Uh, that, that was never completed though, was it? Well, it was in the sense that the railway was completed and it's still the line that trains from London to Bristol run on. Mm -hmm. And Bristol was a port on which you could board a steamer and go to New York. And in fact, it was, I think it was Brunel steamers, which were the first ones to run on an actual schedule. Mm -hmm. See, when you, when you got on a okay. sailing ship, you were totally at the mercy of the wind. So if you are lucky, you could get to America in four weeks, but if you're unlucky, it could take three months. Whereas with steamships, you could actually say, the steamer is going to leave Bristol or Liverpool on this day, and it's going to get to New York on that day. And it might be a day late if the weather was bad enough, or if it was the Titanic, which sank on the way. But you know, from, from then on, you actually could say, yeah, we're every, every Wednesday, we've got a, a ship to New York and it leaves on, Thursday at five, and it did. Mm. And that's why steam technology was such a huge advance over sail. Right, and that, not to turn this in too ideological of a direction, but that's the second time you've made reference to the dispatchability of steam power, the dispatchability of the resource coal, fundamentally, right. as compared with uh, being dependent upon cycles of, of natural variability, whether it's water flowing downhill or 
hoping the wind um, catches our sails or, or turns our, our wind turbines. Um, and in that sense, fundamentally, that dispatchability of coal is what enabled um, all of the expectations that could be relied upon that enabled um, not only the formation of particular distinct factories, but a whole industrial civilization that ran on timetables and you were able to have trust across time and, and space because of that dispatchability of the energy resource. Exactly. Yes, and obviously first with coal and then later on with, with oil. They're phenomenally good in one sense. I mean, we're so used now, aren't we, to the criticism of fossil fuels, it's easy to forget what a brilliant liberating force they were in their day. And in, in fact, they still are. We're now much more aware than our ancestors of the of the costs which come with them, but we're still finding it um, difficult to phase them out for exactly the reasons you say. Uh, I'm very enthusiastic about the possibilities of wind power and solar power and geothermal and tidal and all these other things we can use, but we have to recognize that there are limitations to them because we can't yet harness them quite as effectively as we could with the fossil fuels. That's really the great energy dilemma that we're looking at now. Mm -hmm. and, and as you allude, there are certainly costs that come with the burning of, of coal and uh, the other fossil fuels. One thing that I'm deeply interested in and um, want to commit more time to is understanding how environmental disputes were adjudicated um, in 19th century Britain. And, and there's a lot of famous cases that you can look into and there's the establishment of you know, the, the elbow room principle of uh, giving space to the, the industrial productivity of others. But um, my concern is that our industrialization, particularly in Britain, was probably too deferential to industry um, and those costs that did come with polluting the air, but it's so fraught uh, with um, confusion because of this doctrine of coming to the nuisance. Like when people move to an industrializing city, they're selecting to live there um, and are thus uh, consenting in a sense to being around that pollution. But there, there were a lot of people who did live in Manchester, for example, prior to its industrialization. So can you talk to us about what principles guided decision-making um, as these boom towns developed and factories were, were being built? Well, I think at first the, the, there was a feeling of euphoria about how productive they were. And so you can certainly find examples of enthusi enthusiastic rhetoric about the fact that, you know, black and yellow smoke was pouring into the sky because, it, to, to, in, you know, in 1880, that was a symbol of productivity. People in Pittsburgh were downright enthusiastic about that. They thought it was great. But of course, they made their football team's colors black and yellow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then once you start realizing that uh, very high levels of asthma and emphysema go with that and, and you know, all the public health downsides, the, the, the one of the great issues in, in Victorian Manchester and London and other big cities was recurrent health crises, most of all with cholera. Cholera suddenly appeared in big cities in about 1830. And it was it didn't discriminate by social class, you know, it killed members of all classes. And that terrified it, it terrified the people who were politically influential as well as the powerless. And so it's from that time onwards, really from the 1830s, that you start understanding the need for public health reform, things like getting a, a sanitary water supply and having a decent drainage system. And then it's from about 
1900 onwards that you get the first restrictions on things like huge heaps of manure in the middle of cities. Like Chicago was full of the slaughterhouses and they had a gigantic manure problem. And eventually with the invention of internal combustion engines, the idea develops, we can actually move all this stuff out of town and we really ought to because it's so dangerous. But then with things like smoke pollution, it's not until the 1950s that Britain and America got serious about that. Britain used to suffer from terrible, London particularly, very severe fog. And in about 1952, there was a fog that was so severe that it led to a huge mortality spike. And then again, the government said, we're now, we've got the technology that we ought not to permit ourselves to have to deal with this. And they began to pass clean air legislation in the 50s and 60s. And the United States did so just four or five years later. So that from the mid 60s on up to the present, the rate of improvement of urban atmosphere has been a, a brilliant success story. We live, a, we know, we breathe a much, much cleaner urban air than our fathers and grandfathers did. There's a really close relationship between wealth and environmental factors. And I've, I've seen you talk about this a little bit in your work. Um, it's something we've talked a lot about on this podcast in the context of the environmental Kuznets curve. Uh, basically, just that sense that uh, when you start off uh, with industrialization, there's going to be pollution and you reach a certain point of wealth where you can address those issues and those issues level off and start to reverse, actually. Um, you talk a little bit about the history of that and just sort of some of the trends that um, uh, industrialization as a process has sort of tracked and um, some of the institutions, I guess, that uh, we focus on are, you know, our markets and property rights and the rule of law. I see those institutions tracking very neatly with allowing industrialization and also allowing this process of sort of environmental cleanup. So what are your thoughts there? Well, I think the good news is that we can have continued economic growth and good environmental regulations. If you look at the, the American politics of the 1970s, after the passage of the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, which created the EPA, consistently manufacturers opposed tougher environmental standards because they said it's going to cut into our profitability. But in fact, after lots of grumbling and groaning, they were able to accommodate the, new, the tough new standards, things like auto emissions, without going out of business. I mean, the American auto industry has remained very, very profitable, and it's cleaned up the cars to the degree that they now emit about 5% of the pollutants of 1970. And so I think we have, to, we have to treat industrialists grumbling with a certain degree of cynicism. It turns out they can, you know, we can make the stuff and we can make it clean and we can still have growth. And then, of course, after 1970, one of the growth industries was the pollution abatement industry, people who were selling products which enabled others to make things more cleanly. And not surprisingly, they got an incentive to lobby for tough rules because it would improve their market position. If they could, you know, if the if government was stipulating um, high, you know, high levels of environmental cleanliness. So at first it was industry versus government, but gradually it's become in one part of industry and government against the dirtiest remaining industries. As you said, though, I mean, another thing that's absolutely right is this. You're only going to get, this is only going to happen in wealthy societies. 
And so if you look at the history of environmental improvement, it's no surprise that it comes in America and Britain and Japan and Holland and Germany, you know, the wealthy industrial nations. And even within those nations, it tends to be the wealthy people who are interested in it. In other words, if you say to a poor person in America who hasn't got dependable employment, don't you think environmental cleanup is important? He or she is very likely to say, well, yeah, a bit, but it's more important for me to get a decent job. Whereas if you say to a very wealthy person whose quality of life is impaired by toxic smoke from a smelter nearby, what do you think we should do about that? They're likely to be very motivated to get rid of it because they can see how clearly it's impeding what's otherwise a very high quality of life. I want to return to the enthusiasm that was uh, palpable in, in the 19th century. And one of the expressions of that that you cover in your course is the Great Exhibition of 1851. Can you talk to us about that, uh, that phenomenon and the wider uh, excitement about machines? Yes, the, the Great Exhibition was the, really the world's first trade fair. And it was held in a great place in Hyde Park in the middle of London a building made of prefabricated sections of iron and glass called the Crystal Palace. There was a competition to design the building and the whole point of the building is that it had to be temporary. Most of the suggested buildings in the competition were too heavy and would take much too long to build. And so when a, a gardener called Joseph Paxton came along and based this design on a greenhouse, uh, the committee said, oh, yes, this is what we want. The committee was full of influential people, including Brunel and Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert. Anyway, the Crystal Palace was a phenomenal architectural success because it could be built very, very quickly, uh, making a huge enclosed space. Uh, it could actually enclose entire fully grown trees. Now, if it had been put up in, I don't know, Central Park in summer, it would have been like a cooker you know, it would have boiled people alive with that much glass. But because the English summer isn't too hot, although it was warm inside, it was bearable. It wasn't like being in the greenhouse. Anyway, um, manufactured goods from all over the world came flooding in. One of the surprises at the Great Exhibition was how good American manufacturers were. Two people who made a particularly good showing were um, um, Samuel Colt, the revolver manufacturer, who was well down the road to making really high quality mass-produced uh, pistols, and Cyrus McCormick, the inventor of the first um, reaping machine, the predecessor of the combine harvester. So a little bit to the chagrin of the English promoters of this show, Americans walked off with a lot of the, prize, the prizes. That was one of these early signs that America was catching up with Britain. But from then on, these big trade fairs caught on all over the world, and it, it continues right up to the present. There's a very famous one in Chicago in 1893 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus. There was a great one in Paris for which the Eiffel Tower was built. There was a great one in St. Louis in 1904, and so on. And so really ever since then, we've had these trade fairs in which the, the rhetoric tends to be the rhetoric of free trade and peace. In other words, obviously, industrial capitalism thrives on peace and it thrives on the ability of different people and places around the world to specialize. And trade fairs make the claim, look at what we can do by bringing together the expertise of the whole world. I think one of the sad things about the 20th century 
was the discovery that warfare had not gone out of fashion. You know, between 1815, when Napoleon finally was defeated, and 1914, when World War I began, there's this 99 years, it wasn't completely peaceful, obviously, there were conflicts, but war was far, far less common than it had been in the 1700s. And the new commercial and industrial classes who'd become politically dominant in places like Britain said, it's because we're in charge now. You know, politics used to be the domain of the old warrior aristocrats and warrior kings, but now it's commercial and industrial people. And one of the things we value the most is peace, peace and international brotherhood. So unfortunately, the two world wars showed that, you know, there was more to it than that, but it, was an, it must have been a very exhilarating period to be alive. Now, the, 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 I think the trick to a fascinating life would be to born, be born in 1820 and to die in 1913. <laughs> <laughs> just, just an upward trend of, of, of human peace and progress. Exactly. Um, I mean, you could die in 1913, looking back to the world you'd remember from your childhood and say, what an incredible improvement we've made. Mm -hmm. um, now, one period that wasn't quite so peaceful in Europe during this time were the revolutions of 1848. Was there any relationship between industrialization and, and the social changes that prompted that uh, um, paroxysm? Well, I think there was some connection, yes, although it's a little bit inchoate. People who've studied it, I mean, Karl Marx himself, who was involved, you know, he was a, a young revolutionary at the time, he was trying to make the case that the rising bourgeoisie, the industrial forces, were trying to eclipse the older um, aristocratic forces, and that this was their attempt to seize control of government in Europe. But it's actually kind of difficult to make that case in France and Italy and Hungary uh, and some of the German states, except in very particular places. So I think other forces were going on, but there's no question that the spread of the of ideas about liberty were very important. I mean, in this sense, one of the things that's, that's very impressive is the legacy of the American Revolution. That by 1800, the Americans had got what advanced thinkers in Europe wanted. They'd got a republic, they'd got a one-man, one-vote democracy, more or less. Uh, they'd got freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and so, it was revolutionaries who looked to America as this inspiring place. I mean, that's a difficult thing to remember, isn't it? That we've grown up in a world where America is, the, in a way, the, the world's leading counter-revolutionary nation because America had faced up to and opposed communism. But certainly between 1790 and 18, 1860, probably, 1848 or 1860, America was the place which everyone admired the most. So if you look at liberal thinkers, people like Kosciuszko and, and Gary Baldi in Italy, uh, and actually Marx too, they thought America was fabulous. That's what they wanted. And so I think the way to think about 1848 is the aspiration to remake Europe on something like the American model. Well, something that catches people off guard, I think, as they learn about um, the history of political thought is how Marx himself spoke so favorably of the material progress initiated by industrialization, because yeah. now we associate Marxism with anti-industrialization and the, the extreme environmentalists, but he was very much a, a pro-industrialist. Absolutely. Yeah, he thought industrialism was good, but that capitalism was bad. 
In other words, he couldn't help being impressed by how productive it was. But then he said, it's a tragedy that the, the benefits are distributed so uneven. And of course, he was also part of the first generation to see that. People who left farming and went into industrial work, their motive for doing so was the belief that they could earn more, which during economic good times was true. I mean, you earn much better wages as a factory worker than as a farm laborer. But then, of course, there's the business cycle. And so what you didn't have as an industrial worker was the job stability so that you might in, in experience good years for five years, but they're followed by five very lean years. And because you're no longer living on the land and can't fall back on growing your own plot of fruits and vegetables, that could lead to, I mean, it could lead to imminent starvation. And, and so I think you're right, you're absolutely right. Marxism is a protest against the inequitable distribution of industry, which is itself a very good thing. Another question for you um, on these social trends. Can you please put the Chartist movement into context for us? Yeah, the Great Reform Act of 1832, which I mentioned briefly before, was the act of Parliament which recognised that Parliament must periodically reform itself, that they needed to create new constituencies to, to reflect new areas of population. But it still said, you can only vote if you're a major property owner. Even after the Reform Act, only about 5% of British men could vote, which is to say about 2.5% of the whole population. And the Chartists were a, a political protest movement of the 1830s and 40s, which said, the right to vote ought not to be connected to the ownership of property. It ought to be connected to the mere fact of being alive. And so it was, a, it was a movement dedicated to universal manhood suffrage. I don't think it ever made the breakthrough to women's suffrage, but in its day it did, again, it was one of these pro-American movements. Why, should, why shouldn't poor people have the right to express their opinion? Because the, the nation itself presupposes their existence, as well as the existence of the property owners, to be able to um, persist. Anyway, the Chartists periodically had moments of great influence, but what they weren't able to do was to ever um, transform the political system. They were a pressure group, in effect. After the Great Reform Act, there was another one in 1867, which extended the vote even further. And then there was another one again in 1883. And then votes for women came at the end of World War One. And, and the, the Chartist movement is one of the movements which set that process of constant reform in motion. I think it's really interesting. Obviously, the some of the themes that we're hitting here, you see these trends tracking that industrialization is leading to progress along other um, po political progress, more uh, ability for people to participate in democracies, these things. Um, yeah. One, one of the things that you know, we talk about on this podcast is uh, popular attitudes today towards industrialization uh, can be quite p pessimistic. And I uh, happened to catch a talk that you gave. Uh, I watched it online, but um, it was something along the lines of the case for environmental progress, um, which I, I think you gave it in New Hampshire or somewhere. But uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
my view of the environmental situation at the moment is that we've got some serious problems that we need to take them seriously, but, what we, but that we don't face a kind of existential crisis. In other words, it's much better to have industrialization plus the problems it brings than to have neither. And, the own, and I think that there are some environmental activists who haven't really faced up to how ghastly the world used to be before the Industrial Revolution, just how utterly dreadful. And also the way in which industrialization has made us much more versatile than any ancestor generation. So we face, for, I mean, for example, we do face the problem of rising sea levels. I think that is pretty clearly happening. But we're also far more adaptable than any previous generation because we've got an enormous fund of technology and we've got an enormous um, inventiveness, which is now built into humanity, that every generation has a lot of highly educated people who, whose attention is drawn to whatever problems we face in each new generation. And so, that, for example, as rising sea levels and rising global temperatures become more and more significant, more and more energy is going to be devoted to alleviating those problems. I mean, I think, well, I mean, in that respect, a fascinating example is that of the Netherlands. You, uh, you mentioned that previously, uh, Jordan, that mm -hmm. a lot of the Netherlands is below sea level. And yet the number of people who die of drowning diminishes from century to century in Holland. It used to kill a lot of people in the 1400s. Now it doesn't kill anybody. And that's because the Dutch are rich and because they've become so good at dike technology. Now, that doesn't mean that building dikes around the whole of Florida is the ideal solution. But it does show that a, well, a wealthy nation with a special environmental challenge can do a lot. And it's interesting to see how in the last 30 years, the improvement of coastal defenses in Bangladesh has also made Bangladesh a place where fewer people die of drowning, even though sea levels are rising. So I think that's a, that's a useful way of thinking about that. And similarly, when we, look at, when we look at the history of previous claims that we're facing an unmanageable environmental crisis, time after time, they turn out not to have been true. There was a famous English economist called Stanley Jevons way back in the, in the 1860s who said, we should use less coal because otherwise we're going to use up all the coal resources, which our descendants are going to need in the 1900s. Well, Britain took no action on that, and it was right not to, because we'd look back on we'd look back at Jevons not as a marvelously prophetic figure, but as a slightly comical one, because what he failed to foresee is the development of new technologies, and of course he failed to foresee how much more coal there was in the world than he thought there was. Now, in his defense, if I recall correctly, he was among the first to identify that as we make improvements in energy efficiency, we don't use less. Uh, we continue to, to use more because of that rebound of price. Right, exactly. Oh yeah, I don't mean to imply that he was a comical figure. He was a brilliant <laughs> figure, but his, his- On that point, yes. Right, his forward-looking projections turn out to have been completely off the mark. I mean, I think one of the things that happens to you when you spend your life studying history is that you become more and more convinced about how unknowable the future really is. I mean, I often give talks and, you know, about some historical issue and everyone listens politely and then they say, all right, now tell us what's going to happen next. <laughs> to which my answer is, the more you study history, the more certain you become that you can't tell what's going to happen next. It's, 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 un it's absolutely unknowable. 
so although we've got lots of very intelligent people making predictions and projections, that's all they are. And none of them is going to come true, or at least if they do, it's now impossible for us to tell which of them is going to come true. No, no amount of expertise can correct that. And that's a big part of why I personally am skeptical of a, a certain style of um, environmental policy that aims to place a so-called price on carbon emissions. We're the, the integrated assessment models that attempt to do this are projecting not just decades, but centuries into the future. And uh, to work backward from, from centuries, two, three, four centuries in the future is quite a dicey proposition when we don't know what technologies will emerge uh, to um, perhaps lessen the blow um, or, or make it even um, not a blow at all. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, you can understand policies which have got a 10 or 15 year horizon in view. Obviously, we've got to make predictions um, because we've got to decide how to allocate resources, no doubt about that. But the further in the future it goes, the more cloudy and vague it becomes. Yeah, so well, I, I certainly like don't think that um, someone at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution uh, or very few people would have truly believed we would be interfacing from three different parts of the country via video conference in real time. It's just remarkable what we can do, uh, yeah. do now, thanks to the um, virtually exponential progress with our technology in uh, even you know, in your lifetime. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So we can be grateful to our 18th century ancestors for things like, um, I don't know, limited liability. That turns out to have been a very, very shrewd thing to develop because it's, it was so important to uh, business development. But if they tried to introduce detailed policies relating to energy use, that would have been hopeless. One of the things that I've kind of found interesting is that um, when you look through even our more recent history with projections going forward about environmental issues, they tend to be pe pessimistic. You think of like the limits of growth model, um, Silent Spring, these things. Um, a lot of times I think, you know, it's sort of the rhetoric and the incentives all point towards sort of catastrophizing these things because in order to be optimistic, you kind of have to, like you said, since the, the future is unknowable, it is almost a leap of faith to say, well, progress will continue. What are your thoughts on, um, on that, I guess? Uh, is, is it the case that there's sort of a, a leap of faith that you're taking in progress in order to have an optimistic view of the future? Yes. I mean, obviously, because I just said that we don't know what the future's like, I can't prove to you that it's going to be better than the present. But I could, but, but I do believe it will be, at least in material terms. And the reason I think so is because that's how I understand the history of the, of the, the previous several centuries. But I mean, another important component of this is, is media. If you think about the, the whole media apparatus, and particularly the news, it's all set up to tell us bad news, whereas there are hardly ever any good news stories, or at least if there are, it's one little thing at the very end of the news, implying here's an aberration. Whereas I think if, we, if you take the long view, you can easily say, look at the improvements. They've been so incredible. Even the poorest people today live much richer lives in some ways than the kings of 500 years ago. Um, 
And so when you get a, an optimistic prediction from someone, it isn't particularly newsworthy. Whereas when you get a catastrophic one, it is newsworthy. And so, and, and the media latch onto that. And then of course, they nearly always oversimplify the scientific studies on which the prediction is based. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? When you, when you read the very measured scientific articles, the peer reviewed articles, and then see the headline which came out of them, the, the distance between them is gigantic. So, and, and similarly with, fic with fiction, you know, there's a, an entire branch of fiction is dystopian future fiction. And, and that's not surprising because utopian future fiction would be very boring to read. And we tend to be contemptuous of the problems that the future people had because the problems were so slight. Jordan, do you have anything else? I don't believe so. We've covered a lot of, no. a lot of ground and uh, you've given us terrific insights, Professor. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Very nice to meet you both. Yeah, are there any, uh, are there any projects that you're working on or uh, anything that you'd want our listeners to keep an eye out for that uh, you have coming out sometime in the future? Yes. At the moment, I'm working again with the great courses, the, the, the video and audio lecture series, and I'm doing one on the history of railways, how railways transform the world. I've always been a railway enthusiast, and I grew up in a railway town. And so this is an attempt to, to give the 200-year history um, of, the, of the whole thing and how, how marvelous they are and how insights of the 1820s about smooth metal wheels on smooth metal rails are still motivating improvements in railway technology right up to the present. So that'll be, uh, I'm recording it this time next year and it'll come out in the fall of 23. So I hope that every single one of your subscribers will at once buy a copy of that lecture series. <laughs> Great, we'll keep an eye out for it. Well, I, I guarantee you I will, that sounds edifying. Fabulous. Thanks so much. Great. Our guest today has been Dr. Patrick Allett. Dr. Allett, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. It's a great pleasure.